Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the Book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to continue to cover Article 12 from the epitome of the Formula of Concord, looking at what the various issues are that need clear confession with regard to the other factions, heresies, and sects that never embrace the Augsburg Confession, specifically the erroneous articles of the Anabaptists. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois, and my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is the Reverend Dr. Matthew Richard. He is the pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Minot, North Dakota. Pastor Richard, welcome back to Concord Matters. Hey, thanks, Sean. Good to be here. Well, we are certainly honored and pleased to have you back with us again here today, a second week in a row, to finish this section on the various errors in the Anabaptist theology. Last week, we covered the erroneous articles that cannot be tolerated in the church with reference to the Anabaptist theology. And today we're going to look at the articles that cannot be tolerated in the government and in domestic life. And I really think that when we're reading about the Anabaptists and their struggles with the government, it seems like they really do make a distinction here, at least in terms of how it's laid out in the Book of Concord here, between the government and the church. And so we're going to want to talk about that here in a minute. But let me go ahead and first Go ahead and read the first couple of paragraphs on this section. So uh, again, on this show, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, is the epitome of the formula of Concord, Article 12, and picking up with paragraph 12.1 under this, articles that cannot be tolerated in the government. Under the New Testament, public office is not a calling that pleases God. And paragraph 13.2, a Christian cannot with a good, clear conscience hold or fulfill public office. All right, I think we'll just go ahead and pause there. I think there's enough to cover in that section there. So again, they make this distinction between articles that can't be tolerated in the church and then articles that can't be tolerated in the government. And we've talked about several times as we've gone through the Book of Concord that in the context of the Middle Ages, obviously government and church, very connected at that time. And so this is a little interesting that the Anabaptists are already kind of making some sort of distinction there. And then the Lutheran confessors are also responding to that distinction and, and kind of breaking these out here as well. So is there a distinction in the government and the church, Pastor Richard? Yeah, very good question. We want to understand that indeed there is a distinction between what we would call the state or the government and the church. We'd also say that there's a distinction between the government, state, as one, and then the church as another distinction. But there's also a third distinction we can point out, and that is going to be the family. 
we look into the small catechism, at the very end of the small catechism, we have the household charts and some biblical passages. And as you go through that vocational section of the small catechism, you find out that the small catechism talks about the roles of bishops and pastors and preachers and also parishioners themselves, which is clearly that distinction of what we call the estate, E-S-T-A-T-E, the estate of the church. And that church is an estate. It is a vocational realm or sphere that we Christians are a part of. And we properly call that the right-hand kingdom. It's just as a short way of referencing this. But then the small catechism also talks about the estate of the governing authorities, such as we look at those judges and police officers and so forth. But then the catechism goes on to a third estate, which is going to be talking about husbands and wives and parents and children. That's going to be the estate of the family. And so we want to properly understand that we have these three estates that we walk in as Christians. They're vocational hats, if you will, different hats that we wear in society, that we function as citizens of the state, we function as dads or wives or children or grandparents within the estate of the family. And then we also understand that we function in the church as parishioners, we function in the family as husbands and wives and so forth, and then again, we function in the state as citizens, all three of those different estates. So then as we look at the statements here, and I just read the first two in a second, I'll read the rest. And I think I probably could have read them all together. They're really all connected in this. But I should have highlighted that once again, these are things that we reject and condemn. I know at other points in the epitome of the Formula Concord, we specifically state that. But these are things that we do not agree with. And so I agree with you and what you were just laying out really well, especially with that catechism connection there for us of how we see the different estates that a Christian is called to live in. And last week you talked about all of this flowing forth from our vocation, and I really like what you brought out for us last week in that as well. But as this then relates to our vocation, these are things that we reject and condemn. We are not saying that in the New Testament, uh, public office is not something that is pleasing to God. We as Lutherans do not agree with that statement. And so I'm going to go ahead and read the rest of these. And then if you would just comment briefly again on how this all relates to our vocation, why we reject and condemn these ideas. So let me finish these out here real quick. So this is picking up with paragraph 14.3. In cases that require action, a Christian cannot use the office of the magistrate against the wicked without harming his conscience. For protection and defense, citizens may invoke the power that the magistrates possess and have received from God. I think that's something that maybe has contemporary applications for us. But continuing on here with paragraph 15.4, a Christian cannot take an oath with a good conscience, nor can a Christian promise loyalty with an oath to the hereditary prince of his country or sovereign. And then paragraph 16.5, under the New Testament, public officials cannot, without injury to conscience, impose capital punishments on evildoers. Okay, so once again, these are the articles that cannot be tolerated in the government, and these are the articles that the Anabaptists have, are promoting, and are teaching. And we as Lutherans reject and condemn these. We do not agree with these. So can you just talk briefly again with what you just laid out there in terms of the various estates that we live in as Christians, how this relates then to our vocation as living as Christians in these estates. 
Yeah. Okay. So if we look at, let's just back up to the church, the family, and then we'll get to the government itself. And so we would obviously say as Christians that we are definitely full support of the church, the estate of the church. We support pastors who preach and proclaim the goodness of the gospel. We as parishioners go to church to receive those good gifts from the servants of God, this word and sacrament. And so we understand that God works through the church to deliver us his means of grace for the sake of forgiveness, life, and salvation. So the church functions, again, through the means of grace, the good news of the love and mercy and grace of God to give us and impart to us forgiveness, life, and salvation. So we say the church is good for that sake. Then we would look at the family, and we would say with respect to the family, we have dads and moms and children and grandparents, and we would say the family is good because it works to give us care and nurturing, the education of our children for the sake of raising children and also for the sustaining of the family, thinking about families sustaining their elderly grandparents in the end of life and so forth, all granting mercy and care. And with that respect, the economy would also fall underneath that estate of the family as well, that we are providing care and mercy for each other. And then we look to the state. And we would say that the state is good and true, that God establishes the state for the sake of working order and peace in society. So the Lord sets up the state, presidents and senators and judges and policemen and military, and these individuals in their vocations within the state, they work through the sword, as we hear in Romans 13, working through the sword to coerce to establish laws and to use force, not for the sake of oppressing individuals, but for the sake of maintaining order. And then also what we would say is curbing sin itself. To establish a curb, if you think of a curb on a road, if we didn't have curbs, my goodness, we'd be driving all over the place. It'd be chaos and disorder and disruption as we're running into each other and driving on each other's property. But the state functions to give good order, to keep curbs on society to keep rampant sin from bleeding out and causing an absolute chaos upon the family and the church. And so when the state is functioning correctly, enacting its sword, enacting laws for the sake of force and good order and peace, well, then it's beautiful. The church can minister the sacraments in peace. The family can operate in peace without the threat of chaos and anarchy and bloodshed and war. And so, indeed, we would say the state is extremely important. It's morally good and just to serve within that state and to be citizens of a state and to be praying for those state officials as they work, again, for the sake of good order. So then, as you talk about, as we live in our vocations in these various estates, and again, I think we do see the contemporary application, at least in this sense, of I think that's what's intention going on right now is is where does the state belong? Where does my family belong and taking care of my family and preserving their health and safety? And and where does that relate to my Christian faith, uh, especially as we live under a pandemic? And so I think people are wrestling with these days, how all of these fit together. And I think sometimes we have this notion that these estates, these various estates, as we live in our vocations, are in competition or separate and not working together in that sense. So are these estates in competition or how do they fit together here? 
Yeah, it's it's a very good question. When it comes to these estates, it's not really uh, an essence of a balancing act. It's much like law and gospel. I'm reminded always of this great quote, and I, I really wish I could remember who stated it. They said, you know, when it comes to law and gospel, law and gospel are not a divine cocktail. Uh, not a big cocktail drinker, but I, I'm reminded of that old Tom Cruise movie where he was mixing the drinks. And I've actually, I've, I've never seen the movie. I just remember seeing the trailers for it. And you mix together a little bit of this and a little bit of this, and you hold it up in that metal canister and you shake it over your head and you pour that nice, great cocktail and it's perfectly mixed. When it comes to these estates, we don't mix and balance them. We want to understand that we want to distinguish them. And as we distinguish them, and this old quote says that we distinguish law and gospel as separate shots. They're separate drinks and that they have separate distinctions. And so when we understand that they have separate distinctions, these distinctions are not in competition, but they work for the sake of harmony, grace, mercy, and they all work together with their distinct goals. Again, the church to deliver forgiveness life and salvation, the family to bring about mercy and care and nurturing and sustaining each other, and the state to bring forth good order and peace in society. And so we must properly understand that all three of them function for the goodness of giving good gifts to all of us. And now this is especially important in our day and age as we think through perhaps relating these to the uh, Ten Commandments as well. As we look in our modern day and age, especially with this COVID-19, I've been telling my parish as we think through this, that when we understand when the CDC makes four different assertions in looking at COVID, they are attempting to maintain the goodness of the fifth commandment, which is thou shalt not murder, which is all about protection of life. And so we would say that life is good. It's a good gift for us. Life from the womb to the grave is all precious. And therefore, we support and sustain life to the best of our abilities. And so when the CDC makes guidelines, we understand that they are making guidelines for the sake of what? Trying to protect life and give the gift of life. And then when the governor stands up and the governor is looking at different things in society, the governor is attempting to make decisions for the basis of that fifth commandment of maintaining and protecting life, but also for keeping good order in the midst of a uh, society that is uh, maybe perhaps a little uneasy, which is going to be under that fourth commandment to have that good order respecting our governing authorities. So so that we don't have looting and rioting, which again is going to come to the other Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are all about protecting God's gifts for us. And we think through that, the gift of authority, the gift of life, the gift of marriage, the gift of property, the gift of contentment, and so forth. And the Lord works through these estates, the church and the family and the governing authorities for the sake of our good for giving us good gifts. So again, we want to understand that these estates of the government and the family and the church are spheres and realms that we function in as Christians. They're different hats that we function in and that we can actually have different roles in, you know, such as being a maybe a judge or a policeman and then also a father at the same time and a parishioner all simultaneously at the same time. But understanding these are estates or spheres that we live in for the sake of good order, of the goodness of the gospel and sustaining us as a culture and country as well. And as you were talking there, this is something that I've done a lot of thinking about as we've gone through this whole COVID situation as well, is that I completely agree with what you laid out there, that we're considering the fifth commandment, the fourth commandment, but we also have the third commandment. 
And in making decisions, I think that one of the things that we have seen highlighted in here is that we have completely taken out the estate that a lot of citizens, and especially we as Lutheran Christians, live in, which is that we live in the state of the church. That means something to us, and that is important to us, and we endeavor to want to keep the third commandment. And I don't think that the church has really been consulted in making these I mean, really, it's at the basis of these are philosophical decisions that impact how we live our life. And while I certainly support that it is from the fifth commandment and care of the neighbor, and that's the state's job, and they're focused on that, and I am going to try to endeavor to keep the fourth commandment and abide by their recommendations, at the same time, I also have problem where there are those recommendations or mandates and things that are put in place that impact how we're faithful to the other commandments or just the other tenets of our Christian faith as well. And one of the things that I've really wrestled with in thinking about this is in terms of what's going on with nursing homes and so forth. And I've actually been working with the nursing homes in our area and trying to write letters to give them our perspective of, hey, this is soul care and we believe in a real presence of Christ's body and blood. And every bit as much as there are nurses that are going into these nursing homes to care for the body, we honestly believe that we need care for the soul as well. And that takes a physical presence as well. And we, we want to abide by recommendations. We want to do this safely and so forth. But we got to hold these things in tension. And really, they do distinguish, as you said, but they're not a cocktail. And I think one of the things that we really wrestle with as Americans is that we have this idea that the church and state are separate. And so the state should never consult the church for what they think or what they believe. And I don't know that that's necessarily what we believe according to scripture. And so I would like you to talk about, you know, this idea of church and state, and is that a biblical idea and how does that play out? But then also, what are maybe some of the consequences of blurring the distinctions between church and state? And maybe even comment briefly on what I've laid out there of when we more than distinguish, we completely separate, which I think is the opposite end of blurring then together. Excellent, excellent thoughts and question. You know, I'm really glad that you brought that up with respect to COVID and also understanding that third commandment. Again, that third commandment is going to be all about the gift of God's word and to remember the Sabbath, which is all about hearing and receiving his word. And so you're absolutely 150% correct that when it comes to the whole COVID situation, it is not just two estates of family and the state. And unfortunately, I think you are absolutely correct, unfortunately, that in many states in America, America, the estate of the church is not being consulted. And so it is not a cut and dry answer with a lot of these situations. We must take into consideration that third commandment, which is the word of God, which really functions underneath the estate of the church, and then also understanding the government, which is the fourth commandment, which is to obey governing authorities, and then also understanding like the CDC is operating underneath that fifth commandment of the gift of life and taking all three of those into consideration. And uh, I know for myself as well, one of my concerns has been you know, I think we in, in North Dakota, obviously, I think we've been doing a very good job of that fifth commandment, protecting our elderly, definitely protecting our elderly. I know our outbreaks in our, in our nursing homes have been relatively low. And so we've done an extremely good job of that fifth commandment. However, on that third commandment area, 
I think there can be a lot of work that needs to be done. Thank goodness with the technology itself, I've been able to, with my cell phone and some of my folks in the church, been able to do video streams into their nursing homes. I know one of our parishioners, she gets together with all of her friends on the uh, third floor and they tune into Facebook Live and they all watch Pastor Richard with the church service and they can be a part of it. And we gave a bunch of hymnals from our church. And so they all have all our hymnals on that level and they can hear the word. And then we have our associate pastor who goes and he's been visiting with them through the screen. So the word has been present. But unfortunately, there are situations where we're not getting to be able to be with our folks. I'm reminded of a parishioner of mine that was in the hospital. I was able to be admitted into the hospital, thankfully. And this gentleman, he just wept. He just absolutely wept and cried because of being away from the word and being away from people. And I just held his hand and I sang hymns, three, four hymns to him until he fell asleep, resting in the comfort of the gospel. And so there is a side of this that we have to keep in mind, and that is the estate of the church, that word and sacrament going forth. And we can't omit the estate of the church at the expense of the state, the government itself. Again, they're, they're all three are extremely important. And, and that leads to your other question there, Sean, and that is the question is this, is do we elevate the state over the church or the church over the state? Again, we have to understand that they're distinct spheres and all three are essential and important. And so it's the same thing when it comes to the law and the gospel. Anytime we submit the gospel to the law, then we lose the preciousness of the gospel. And then if we toss the law out, then the gospel is no longer sweet. We need separate shots of law and gospel because they function for the ultimate end of our salvation. And the same is with the church, the family, and the state. All three of them are good and true, and they need to function for the sake of the benefit of us as a society. And so, again, when we elevate the church over the state, we end up with problems from the 1500s, obviously, with the Catholic Church consuming the state. And then if we elevate the state above the church, then we lose that precious word and sacrament. Again, it's distinguishing all three estates, all three spheres, for the sake of the goodness of our culture and for all of us as people created in the image of God. In just a few minutes before we take a break here, can you briefly cover for us, because I think this will be helpful for us in what I'd like to pick up on the other side of our break, but briefly cover for us, what is the biblical background as far as this idea of church and state? Yeah, one thing we have to understand is, you know, this idea of church and state. Israel, as we think of the Old Testament, Israel functioned through a great time period as what we call a theocracy, where we see basically the state kind of being absorbed by the church into one package. And so we could say from the time of Moses, when they were delivered out of the land of Egypt, from the time of Moses to about the year 586 B.C., During that time when the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 586 BC, Israel really functioned in what we call that theocracy, where we collapse the church and the state together in one. However, after 586 BC, we can remember from our Old Testament history that the Israelites, they were exported or or exiled, we would say, to Babylon. And then we see the Babylonians, and then we see the Persians. And then after even their return back to Israel, 
we can see in the New Testament that they had the Roman Empire above them as well. And so really since 586, we can look back to the early church. There was an idea of church and state. And this is where we pick up with Jesus saying those famous words, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God, distinguishing between the state of the Roman Empire as well as the church and understanding the two distinctions between the left-hand kingdom of the state and the right-hand kingdom of the church. And so we see that even today in America that we have both this left-hand kingdom and this right-hand kingdom. And again, as Christians, we wear both hats. You know, we are parishioners on the one hand, citizens of the kingdom of the right, and we are also simultaneously at the very same time belong to the kingdom of the left, and we wear that hat as citizens. And so we receive the sacrament, we receive the gospel, we hear the gospel, we attend church, and then also we vote, we pay taxes, we're involved in obeying traffic laws and following police laws and so forth, simultaneously both at the same time, because both are good and true. And we see that the left-hand kingdom from Romans 13 is established by God, again, for the sake of good order. So we support both the left and the right-hand kingdom as Christians. And I think that's a really important foundation to lay because we're going to take a break here. But on the other side of the break, we're going to dig a little deeper into what we're dealing with here in the formula of Concord is that how did the Anabaptists understand the relationship of church and state? And we would like to think as Christians that it's all being formed and shaped by what we see present in God's word. And so having that background of the biblical understanding of church and state and how you just laid that out really well for us will be really important for our discussion on the other side of the break, which is specifically how the Anabaptists, especially in these articles of their theology, understand the church and state. So please join us right after this. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUL. Cross Defense is the show where we talk about curious topics to excite the imagination, equip the mind, and comfort the soul with God's Word. Join me, Pastor Tyrell Bramwell, every Monday at 2 p.m. Central on KFUO Radio, or anytime on KFUO.org, or even your favorite podcast app. My friends, our foe is a fierce enemy. Our only defense is Christ on the cross. As we continue talking with the Reverend Dr. Matthew Richard, pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Minot, North Dakota, and we're covering the epitome of the formula of Concord, Article 12, Other Factions, Heresies, and Sects that Never Embrace the Augsburg Confession, specifically talking about those erroneous articles of the Anabaptists. And just before the break, Pastor Richard was laying out for us really well what the biblical foundation is of understanding the relationship of church and state, and he's covered really well for us how we live in the various estates within our vocations, and we wear various hats, if you will. It's gross oversimplification of something that he laid out much better for us before the break. But as we jump in then to specifically what we're dealing with here in Article 12, especially these erroneous articles of theology and understanding, uh, especially the relationship of church and state in the Anabaptist theology, I think this then launches us into that understanding the biblical background and foundation 
what are some of the consequences then of blurring the distinctions between state and church? And then obviously, as we have laid out in the Article 12 here, we think that the Anabaptists do blur those distinctions. So then as you talk about the consequences of blurring those distinctions, go ahead and take us, Pastor Richard, into how the Anabaptists understand church and state. Yeah, you know, as we think about the two estates, when we don't properly distinguish between the two, or perhaps when we subordinate one to the other, what typically ends up happening is that the word and sacraments either get neglected or harmed or skewed off to the side. And that's the great tragedy is that when it really comes down to it, the word and sacraments get lost. And so if we lean too heavily on the state and we subordinate the church to the state, the temptation, even for pastors, is to minister and work in the church in a way of using the sword and by the, the way of force. But we always have to understand that the power of the church, it's Itself is the power of the gospel, the dynamite of the gospel, the word and sacraments, which is a proclamation that does not happen by the force of the sword. And again, so when we don't properly distinguish between the two, or perhaps when we blur them together, what ends up being lost is the word and sacraments. And so with respect to the Anabaptists, how they understood the church and state, it is my understanding that they would, historically, they would understand the difference between the two spheres, the church and the state. They would understand that the state itself was established by God in Romans 13. But the Anabaptists, they chose to be a part or they rejected being a part of the state. In other words, they saw that Jesus's crucifixion was a complete rejection of any violence done by the state itself. And so they would avoid any enforcement of the sword being involved with that as citizens, any use of the sword by police and military and so forth. And so they distanced themselves from the state quite drastically, in fact, even condemning and painting a bad picture of those Christians who would be involved with the state itself with the use of violence. And the failure in this is ultimately understanding is that the state itself, by using the sword, is actually good. Now, it may not seem good to use the sword against sin itself, but using the sword as a way of curbing and creating order in a society is actually very good and true. And ultimately, this comes down to the understanding that the sinful nature without the sword, the sinful nature without the sword, without that curb, will run absolutely wild. The worst thing that is even the worst thing possible is anarchy. What is worse than having a bad dictator or a bad tyrant is anarchy itself, because left unchecked, the sinful nature, boy, wreaks havoc on all things, creating disorder. And anarchy indeed wreaks havoc on that estate of the church and the, especially the family itself. So then in their understanding, and clearly as it was laid out in the various articles that I read that we reject and condemn under this Article 12 here, what would we say about those Christians who want to serve in the state? So to give an example, setting up the history and background, I had Pastor Jaime Nava on, who's a friend and classmate of mine from seminary, but I also shared at that time that He's actually serving also as a military chaplain right now. He's a lieutenant junior grade chaplain in the United States Navy. So it would seem obvious that the Anabaptists would frown upon that service. But then also we would also have various congressmen and things like that that serve in other functions in the states or even just working you know, in the state house, if you will, even if it's a secretary. It would seem like 
just any association with the state, they seem rather against. And so can Christians function in the state? Obviously, we reject and condemn the Anabaptist teaching on it, but what is our teaching then? Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to understanding the uh, states, we would say that since all three of them are good and true, all distinct and different from each other with different intents and purposes, that we as Christians definitely function within the realm of the church, which I think there's no dispute on that, that the church is is an estate that we function in. And then we also function in the estate of families, which we would all admit and, and share that that is good and true to be within the family. But then this is where we would differ from the Anabaptists. We would say that Christians can indeed function in the realm of the state as soldiers and policemen and judges and so forth, that this is right and godly, that it is indeed a very godly and good vocation for individuals to function in those realms. We have here at St. Paul's, we have quite a few military families. We have an Air Force base that exists north of us here in Minot, North Dakota, And we look at those military servicemen and women, and we say, thank God for you functioning within the estate of that left-hand kingdom. And I'll oftentimes encounter them and tell them, say, you know, thank you for your service. Thank you for giving uh, peace in our society so that I can wake up as a pastor, drive to the church on a Sunday morning, and not worry about bullets flying over my head, not worrying about whether or not there will be food on my table to be a father but to go in peace and safety to the church, to open up the church, to stand in the pulpit and proclaim Christ and him crucified without having to worry about bullets flying through the stained glass window. And so we say, thank God for the policemen. Thank God for judges and soldiers and those who walk properly in their vocations in that left-hand kingdom for the sake of yielding that sword to enact good order in society. And so, yes, absolutely. Now, here's the thing. We must keep in mind that oftentimes within that vocation, that left-hand kingdom, that individuals such as policemen and soldiers and so forth will have to bring force, the force of the sword against evil and justice. Now, bringing that sword, swinging that sword may come across and look as if it is evil, but we have to understand that using that sword is a work of love, that they are really using that sword to curb evil and to keep good order. And even though that sword might be swung with a tremendous amount of might and even perhaps shed blood, that we understand that that sword being swung for us is for the sake of our neighbors, at the sake of a good society. And that is a work of love, even though it may not appear so. As you were talking there, I found myself thinking about Dr. Jean Veith, who writes a good bit on Christian vocation and the Lutheran doctrine of vocation. I think he's the first one that kind of clued me into this, and it's very clearly present in the writings of Luther himself, that the connecting factor of all of the estates is kind of what I think Dr. Jean Veith describes as the umbrella over all of the estates, which is that of the order of Christian love. And that's, I think, as we were talking about how do we balance all of these things and the commandments in the first half of the show, especially under the COVID situation and so forth, what the overarching thing is we're desiring to live in Christian love. And that's how we maintain this distinction and balance and live in all of them. And I like what you laid out there for us is that when, especially like the soldiers that you talked about, their service in the military, 
It is in Christian love that they serve in that vocation that God has called them to that allows for you to live in the order of vocation as pastor, which serves the church, but also as father. And again, you serve in those vocations because it's your Christian love for others serving faithfully in that vocation. So I think, again, that overarching umbrella of Christian love really does unite these together. But then also, as you were talking, it made me think about that, again, because we often blur these distinctions or fail to rightly distinguish them, what it leads to is a lot of conflict. And I can see this coming out in kind of a couple of ways. A lot of times, especially here in the United States, we have a conflict where we kind of exalt, and you've talked about this a little bit previously, but we exalt the like military and so forth, and we put a little too much trust in that or the government, and we trust what their recommendations are to keep us safe, which they also then eliminate the church. But then at times we can also, and this would seem to be the era of the Anabaptists, is that we exalt the church to, you know, disintegrating entirely from that of the state. And maybe even there's some Christians out there that would push the family out of it as well. And so at times these different estates can come into conflict, specifically as we're talking about here, that of state and church. So what happens then when we have the state and church in conflict? Yeah. So a couple things here that you mentioned, you mentioned just briefly, which is worth mentioning and thinking about that we have these three estates. And then what happens when one of the estates fails to perform its duty? Now, we understand that these estates are created by God for the goodness of our society. And as you mentioned properly there, the love for one another. But what happens when one of these estates fails to perform its function, well, unfortunately, what happens is one of the other estates has to pick up the slack. And so, for example, just real simply, you know, when the family breaks apart, history has shown us, unfortunately, when the family breaks apart, that either the estate of the church or the government needs to step in to compensate for that. And then when they're compensating for that, then they're not able to do their vocational duty and the whole thing can come unraveled. And so we have to understand that when one of the estates fails to properly act, then one of the other two estates will have to compensate or adjust for that, and which then creates an unbalanced society. But then that leads us to the next question. Well, if one of the estates is failing to do its due diligence, what happens when one of these estates, such as the government, act immoral or act improperly? You know, how are we to function within the realm of the church or within the realm of the family? And this is where there's a divine tension, we would say, between Romans 13 and also Acts chapter 5. Now, real simply stated, Acts chapter 5 says that we're to obey God rather than man in times when mankind or when the state itself infringes over top of the moral ethics of what is good, right, and true, what we would understand as Christians to be holy and just. So on the other side of the coin, we have Romans 13, which says that we are to pray for our governing authorities. Now, we have to keep in mind that when Paul wrote Romans 13, the emperor at that time who was in charge was Nero. And and if we do just a brief Google of Nero, Emperor Nero in the first century, he was not a pious, godly emperor. I mean, he was a ruthless dictator. And so we see Paul saying that we need to pray for Nero. And, and in fact, in every generation, we as the church, we pray for all of our presidents. I mentioned a while back that we prayed for President Obama. We pray for President Trump. And whether it's Trump or Biden coming up, we will pray for Trump or Biden as Christians. 
Now, with that stated, when the state itself acts in a way that causes us or leads us to sin as Christians, we then appeal to obeying God rather than man, which means to peacefully resist the state of the government and to indeed to resist. Now, that then brings up another question, then how are we to resist? Um, I think it's really important for us to understand that when we resist the government in a sense of resisting maybe an unjust edict or an unjust law that is in our land, we do not, I repeat, we do not use sin as a way to combat sin. So we cannot sin against our authority who is sinning against us. The sins of authority are not can we say it this way, corrected by the sins of citizens. We must still work within our proper vocations as citizens to act morally and just and good, following the Ten Commandments, following the way of love, to correct a bad tyrant or to correct a bad law. We're never given the authority to react in lawlessness and absolute anarchy and sin against a sinful tyrant or a sinful law in our land. Which then makes me think of famous Lutheran that really wrestled with this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer at the time of World War II resisting Hitler, right? He's kind of the most famous one that we Lutherans tend to point to. But I like how you also highlighted that St. Paul, when he writes Romans 13, talking about submitting to the governing authorities, and then also, as he writes to Pastor Timothy about praying for those who are in authority over us, that this really has been informative for us in terms of how we wrestle with these things. And I know that very present in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's thinking and wrestling with this was a lot of things that he read in Luther and so forth. And so I guess to just kind of draw a close to this section on articles that cannot be tolerated in the government with relationship to the articles presented in their theology of the Anabaptists, as we Lutherans wrestle with these things today, and again, contemporary applications, especially in some states more than others, the one that I'm in, in Illinois, uh, we've really had to wrestle with these sorts of things of how we resist those who are maybe being corrupt or not actually operating in love and sort of the edicts and things that they put in place. And obviously, I'm not saying that it's to the level of Hitler or those sorts of things, but maybe just briefly how we as Lutheran Christians understand our relationship of these various estates and how we live out faithfully as Christians in relationship to the government. Yeah, very good question. You know, I'm going to extremely uh, oversimplified Bonhoeffer, but just for the sake of understanding it and maybe kind of some of the principles of what he went through and thinking about it, that there'll be times in life and we have to understand, and this doesn't, I would say this does not happen every single day of our lives, but there are situations in life where we are presented with only two options. And many times I think there are more than just two options. There can be three, four or five, but there are some times where we may be faced with maybe only two options and they're not good and good or good and evil. Now it's easy when you have a decision before you between a good choice and an evil choice oftentimes our old adam obviously wants to choose that which is evil but you know on paper and in theory as we look at things we can say that is a good choice and that's a bad choice easy we go with the good choice it's more difficult when we have two good choices. Oftentimes we get overwhelmed with an abundance of blessings and having two or three choices. Oh my goodness, which choice am I going to choose? They are all good. But perhaps the most difficult is having two evil decisions before you. And again, I'm going to oversimplify, but when faced with two evil decisions, you choose the lesser of the two evils, always the lesser of the two evils. Now, 
With respect to the government now, the understanding of Acts chapter 5, and especially in our context and right now in our day and age with everything going on with COVID, obviously we want to respect the fourth commandment, which is really that realm of the governing authorities. Now, we would also understand that the fourth commandment applies to pastors who are in positions of authority and also dads and moms. But if we allocate that fourth commandment more so, maybe lean it towards the government, we would understand that there's also that third commandment. And when that third commandment of the word and sacrament, cherishing the Word of God, when those two gifts of the gifts of authority and the gifts of His Word and sacrament, when those two estates of the church and the government, when they come into conflict, again, we appeal to Acts chapter 5, and that is to obey God rather than man, but then again, to do it as peacefully as possible. And so that might mean at times and places where we as Christians will be breaking a law of the governing authorities. And then when we do, there is going to be a chance that we will suffer the consequences of breaking that law. But as we break that law, to confess clearly and boldly with Christian love and in a peaceful manner why we will not and cannot adhere to a particular law, and then be willing to suffer those consequences as a part of bearing that cross of Christ. And indeed, we can look throughout many generations of Christians in the past who have said it is better to obey God rather than man, and then suffer the consequences. And as we suffer those consequences, we do so again with grace and integrity and love for our neighbor, while also that bold confession of confessing Jesus in spite of what sword might come our way. Yeah, once again, I think that overarching umbrella of Christian love really helps us live in the tension, which the Christian life is one that's always lived in tension, but we live in the tension of these various estates that we are called to. And in the remaining time on the show, it maybe feels a little forced, but I think we've talked about a lot of important connecting factors here of the articles that cannot be tolerated in the domestic life. We have three paragraphs that we want to cover there that we reject and condemn in the Anabaptist theology as well. But a lot of these principles that we've laid out will also help us understand our right relationship, once again, in terms of the estate of the family or of domestic life, uh, as we call it here. So I'm going to go ahead and read these three paragraphs and three points together, and then we can discuss those as well in the remaining time that we have. So once again, this is the epitome of the Formula of Concord, Article 12, picking up with paragraph 17, Point one, these are articles that cannot be tolerated in domestic life. A Christian cannot with a good conscience hold or possess property, but is in duty bound to devote his property to the common treasury. Paragraph 18.2, a Christian cannot with a good conscience be an innkeeper, merchant, or maker of weapons. And paragraph 19.3, married people may be divorced on account of differences in faith. One may abandon the other and be married to another person who shares his faith. All right, thus far our epitome for today. So these articles that cannot be tolerated in domestic life, once again, these are things that we reject and condemn as Lutheran confessors and Christians. And yet at the same time, as I read through them, at least, I see some interesting things because I think about the history of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod and some of the things that we've wrestled with at different times in this, namely the common treasury there in point one was something that was very central to how the, especially the Saxon Lutherans that came over to settle in Missouri, 
they had a common treasury and it was out of that common treasury that they purchased land and it was in Perry County. And that was, of course, connected with Martin Stefan, who was ousted as a bishop and was maybe being unfaithful, especially in his domestic life and those sorts of things. But then also CFW Walther, first president of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod and the seminary. And he also had a lot of very specific ideas not necessarily being an innkeeper, merchant, or maker of weapons, but like participation in insurance and those sorts of things. And that would seem to be a sort of Anabaptist idea at times. But then also just at all times, but especially during the time of the uh, sexual revolution and those sorts of things, you know, we've really wrestled with, is there such things as a biblical justice for divorce and those sorts of things? Once again, I think this is where having a right understanding of our confession as Lutherans can be really helpful for us. So go ahead, Pastor Richard, and in about the five or six minutes that we have left here, go ahead and walk us through some of these ideas and how we understand why we reject and condemn these as articles of faith, but then also how we have a right Lutheran confession of how we live faithfully and wrestle with these things. Yeah, I think I think it all comes back to what we've captured thus far in thinking about these estates. And as you properly mentioned here earlier on, that we walk in these vocations for the sake of loving our neighbor, and especially as parents, which is really quite interesting to see here with those three vocations being pulled out in this, the epitome of the Formula of Concord, where they condemn the incorrect teachings of the Anabaptists with respect to the church, and then with respect to the government, and then now with respect to the estate of the the family. So we see all three of those estates functioning here and in the incorrect views, and then again, offering the correct views of that, that these estates, again, are for the sake of serving and blessing our neighbor. So we can possibly think of it this way. When it comes to these vocations, uh, as you properly stated before, these vocations and these estates are ways in which we are to love our neighbor. And uh, as we think about the estate of the church, as pastors function to serve their parishioners, it is for the sake of delivering them the word and sacraments. And as individuals function within the estate of the government, they are working to bring forth that sword for the sake of curbing evil in society for the sake and the purpose of creating good order and stability and peace in a society. And the same is true when it comes to the family, when a father and a mother, when they function and work in their family, when a grandparent functions in the family, even a child, they are functioning in that family for the sake of loving one another. And even within the family itself, we have the economy that's really brought into this estate of the family for the sake of putting food on the table, for the sake of educating children and so forth. And so so the difficulty with anything in life is that what can happen is we can look to the small details of life or perhaps the outward manifestations of sin itself and the ways that maybe our use with money itself can actually be perverted and destroy communities. And then we attempt to curb that on the outside, which indeed does need to happen many times. However, when it comes to fathers and mothers, and especially like what you were mentioning with some of these different paths of how to use our property and goods, we must understand that when property and goods are used in the proper context as gifts that God has given us, as that we are stewards of these gifts, then we have to be very careful from 
perhaps maybe doing a cookie cutter reaction to how goods and services are to be used. Again, when we take our goods and resources as we do in our families and use them for the sake of love of benefiting, not only those in our family, but using the economy for the sake of putting food on the table and serving one another, a lot of these things can be used in a just and noble and good way. And so to merely react in a way that perhaps to try to cut off abuses and to make a, again, a cookie cutter way of cutting off the use of perhaps insurance or perhaps the use of property and so forth, again, is failing to to understand that, again, there's a way of using property and resources in a way that could be just and true for the sake of loving our neighbor as good stewards of property and so forth. That is well said. Thanks for drawing that all together for us under the umbrella of Christian love as we live in the various estates. Excellent job confessing our faith for us today. That is Reverend Dr. Matthew Richard. We thank you for joining us for Concord Matters and talking us through the clear confession in relation to the erroneous articles of the Anabaptists cannot be tolerated in the government and domestic life from Article 12, the epitome of the formula of Concord. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.